Uh, Well, we're actually going to be taking a break from the book of Acts that you guys have been studying. So if you have a Bible, uh, flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 22. I'm also going to reference Psalm 147 in the mix. So you can maybe put a tassel or a finger there, but we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Let me read a little bit for us and then we will will jump in. 1 Samuel 21 starting in verse 10 and we'll read through verse 2. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one and danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, Achish king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achash said to his servants, Behold, you see this man behaving as a madman. Why did you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act like a madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now there are about 400 men with him. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for a time to open your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak clearly to us now. I pray that you would remove any distractions from our our minds or the the busyness maybe that we're feeling in this part of the semester. And Father, in these few moments, you would just really open up your word for us and speak directly to our hearts. And if you'd be willing, I ask that you pray for yourself, that that your heart would be open to hear whatever God would want to speak specifically to you this evening. And if you'd be willing, I ask that you pray for me, that my words would be his words and not my own. Well, Father, we love you. We trust you. Use this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, there's something exciting about the wilderness. Um, even if you just break down the word wild-er-ness, you just think immediately, okay, there's something, there's something exciting about that. And especially if you're a guy, like the idea of being out in the wild with nothing but like a knife and your cunning, uh, that, that immediately should stir within you like, that would be awesome. Um, you may have even watched the TV show a little while ago uh, with Bear Grylls. Uh, this guy would catapult himself into the middle of nowhere and just survive, just make it. The show got canceled. Uh, sad story, didn't work out financially or something, I don't know. Anyway, it got canceled, but regardless, there was something amazing about watching this guy in the middle of nowhere just survive, just do it. I mean, he would launch into crazy environments, and, and his survival process actually was, uh, was very challenging. In fact, uh, I watched an interview with him, and they just talked about all of the crazy things he had to eat and all the crazy things he had to do just to survive. I mean, he talked about eating maggots under rocks. Uh, he talked about having to drink his own urine just to prove the fact that hey, you could survive this. And uh, just all of these things around, this survival in the wilderness. And at one level, you're like, that's disgusting. But something else within you, you're just kind of like, that would be awesome. Like to have those skills in the wilderness. For me, um, the first time uh, I ventured off into the wilderness really doing it was right after I got married. 
And uh, so we had just gotten married. We load up in our packs, and we go to Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And that's where my cousins live. Beautiful area, ski resort area. And I get my wife, and we get to that the trailhead, and we're thinking to ourselves, we'll stay three or four days, I don't know, maybe a week out here, just surviving, right? We got the, the tools for it. And so we load up our packs, and we start the hike, um, and it kind of dips down into this valley, and it's beautiful and scenic. We're, you know, taking pictures, and we got video camera out, like, this is amazing. We're in the wild, and uh, we get to a point, um, as I'm kind of looking at the topographical map, where we've got to go and scale up this side of this mountain, go over an area, over to a waterfall, uh, go over the waterfall, out, all to the land where we're going to camp on night one. The only problem is we're doing this in early May, right? And uh, in Colorado, early May, it could still snow. And so it started snowing. But we're thinking to ourselves, we're adventurers. This is no big deal. And so we're just kind of continuing along. And we get to a point where the, the trail is getting steeper. The rocks are getting steeper. And the snow is falling on them. And so they're getting slick. And so I come to a point where we've crossed over. And we're going to have to like scale, almost rock climb up the side of this mountain. And, uh, and she's like, are you sure this is the way? And I'm like, ah. We're adventurers, baby. Come on, we're going. And, and I get to a point where I'm up here, like literally rock climbing. And she, I look back at her, and she's covered in snow. And, uh, and I'm like, do you want to go back? And she's like, yes, let's go. And so we turn and, and make our way the long way back, defeated, right, of our little adventure in the wilderness. Kind of funny on the way back, uh, she tripped over a root. The bag was heavy, pushed her to the ground. She falls behind me. All I hear is the thud. I turn and look at her, and I just laugh. Um, not at her, but at the whole scenario, that we had gone all of this way through this rugged terrain and only to walk defeated, tail between the legs. And, and, and I say that I start there because that's where we are in the life of David. He's in the wilderness. He's in one of the most challenging points in his life. He's in the wild, and I'll tell you what, anyone used greatly by God spends time in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Elijah spent two years by the brook of Cherith until that brook ran dry. Paul spent 14 years in Arabia before he would ever start his world of ministry. Jesus himself spent 40 days in the wilderness, but he spent 30 years under his parents before he would ever start his ministry. Anyone that God has used greatly in their life, he spends them first shaping and molding. He spends time with them in the wilderness. And the question you may be asking yourself is why? Like, like, like what's the point I would say this, God is able to carve things into your heart and into your life in the wilderness that he can't in any other place. And if God is going to use you greatly, you're going to spend time in your own wilderness wanderings. And so we're going to look at how David got there. Um, It starts with his trail to the wilderness. How did he get there? His path. First, he stripped of everything that he had gained. At this point in David's life, um, you may be familiar with, with the life of David. Something amazing happens in 1 Samuel chapter 17. He slays the giant, Goliath. He kills him with a single stone and a rock, and all of a sudden he gets this magnificent position 
uh, King Saul, the current king at that time, watches David kill this nine-foot giant and says, I want that boy on my team. You would do the same thing. Like if you saw that guy just wreck house like that, you'd be like, okay, he's got to be my buddy, right? And he says, okay, man, you're going to be on my team. And he sends him out on all of these skirmishes. So he would go and fight this group of Philistines and this group of Philistines. And David is, is defeating the enemy. He's being successful in Saul's army. And suddenly when that moment of success rises, there comes a moment when this parade is coming through town and the ladies start chanting and singing a song. They're singing and dancing the newest club scene music. The newest bump is dun, dun, dun. Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his 10,000s, right? And it's, it's bumping in the club and everyone's excited like, woo, look at David. And it's this epic moment in the life of David. When he had slain the giant, he was rising in popularity, rising in fame, and Saul gets wind of this. He says, that song is stupid. Why can't that be my song? And he gets jealous. And immediately he begins to oppose David. And so David runs. He runs, first of all, to his wife. And when he gets to his his wife, he says to her, hey, um, your dad is trying to kill me because he married his daughter. And he says, your dad's trying to kill me. You've got to hide me. You've got to protect me. You've got to, yeah, I don't know what's going on, but you've got to help me. And she goes, okay, that's fine. You run out the back. I will stage a, a fake body in the bed and you can go back and read it. It's hilarious. She gets an idol, sticks some hair on it, puts, a, puts something in the bed. And then Saul comes looking for his son-in-law, David. And he goes to his daughter and says, where is he? And she goes, hey, dad, why don't you sit down? He's asleep upstairs. Sorry, you might've just missed him, but you can hang out. And he goes, where is he. And they run upstairs. They find that it's a fake and they come back to his daughter and he says, why did you lie to me? And she's fearful. She looks at Saul and says, he made me. He said he'd kill me if I didn't do this. And suddenly Saul's rage just spikes even higher and he goes on a mission to kill him. David then runs to his best friend, Jonathan, And he says, Jonathan, your dad's on a rampage. He's going to kill me. My life is on the line. What are you going to do next? And and Jonathan says, no, no, you're way overshooting this thing. It's not that bad. And then Jonathan finds out, yeah, his dad is on a mission to kill him. And he sends him away. And then he runs to his mentor, Samuel, the guy that had anointed him as king. And he's thinking to himself, okay, my mentor, the the one who is connecting people to God, the one that's really following God right now, maybe he's going to lead me in the next place to go. Maybe he's going to help me out. And, And Samuel soon realizes, I can't protect this guy. And so then he runs to the enemy. He runs to Gath. And you may not be familiar with Gath, but that was the, the capital city of the Philistines, the capital city of Goliath, who he had slain. And we read the passage right now. As David rolls into, the, into town, they say, hey, isn't this dude they're singing the new hip song about? I mean, it's like if Justin Bieber rolled in here. You wouldn't be freaking out like my junior high girls. Um, but you'd go like, what? what's Bieber doing in the night service at college class, right? Like you would just be, it, it would be recognizable. You're like, he has a song. You would know who he is. And, and he wouldn't be able to hide. And that's David. He was the hero of the nation of Israel. They were singing epic tunes about this guy. He was recognizable. And they say to him, aren't you David? And he immediately freaks out. And it says that he feigned like a madman. He says he let his drool run down his beard. He started scratching on, you know, on the ground. He's like, you know, and just feigning insanity. And 
And he did a great job, well done, actor David, because the king says, get this guy out of here. And he flees to the lowest moment of his life, to the cave of Adullam. And what he sees in, in, in his life is that, man, this is not how I planned things to be. And he's in one of the lowest moments of his life. Two Psalms are actually written about David. They're both called Mictums. One is Psalm 147 and the other one is Psalm 57. Where he is alone in the cave saying, God, what are you doing to me? Have you been there? Have you been in a moment when when you feel like your world is crumbling around you and you run and you're looking for some sort of refuge, some sort of safety, and you're just like, God, I don't understand why these circumstances are going like they are in my life. He broke up with you. You're failing your major. You're not sure how you're going to pay for next semester. Your parents get a divorce when you go away to college because they think it's going to be a good move. You walk through your own wilderness wonderings and you're like, God, what are you doing to me? I thought I was being faithful. I thought I was following you as you were guiding me. And, and why is my world falling apart? And that's how David feels. He's saying, God, if you're really good and if you're really there, what the heck are you doing? Have you been there? Yeah, I, I think all of us have been, probably been there at one moment or another. If you've ever walked with God for any portion of time, there comes a moment when, when, when you're like, God, this doesn't make sense. And in that moment, David cries out in the cave, and God sends him some people. Uh, and it's not the crew that you would want. First of all, he sends him his family. And if you're at all familiar with the story of David, uh, his dad had forgotten him, right? When Samuel comes to anoint the next king, he doesn't even bring David in. David's like, oh, he's out there with the sheep. I don't know. And, and so he, his dad, who had forgotten him, his brothers who had belittled him, right? His, his brothers who, as soon as David got to the battle lines, his brothers say, hey, you're just here to see the show. You're not even legitimately here. I mean, that was his family, and they come first. And the next group, it says the in debt, dispirited, distressed ones, right? So it's a crowd of losers. It's guys that can't pay their bills. It's guys that don't have their life together. It's the guys that are just the negative Nancys of the world. And I don't know if you've ever been that. Uh, for me, in college, it was my college roommates. Uh, we packed out a house like all college guys should. There's like six of us there. And, uh, and we're there. And I remember if I would walk in, there's four of my roommates that I just didn't want to be around because they were so negative all the time. And so even if I was in a, even if I was in a good mood, I'd be there for like 10 minutes and be like, oh my gosh, when can I leave? And, and I, just, I just felt that. That was this crew. They were the distressed, in debt, dispirited ones. What do you do in that moment? What do you do when you're in your cave? I think what we need, honestly, is a perspective. Like to get above what's actually happening to see what God might be doing. I don't know if you watch football or not. Anyone? Whoop. Uh, yes, uh, well, th- there was a football player, not an Aggie. I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, his name's RG3. And there was a picture of him um, during one of the games, um, and what happened is, is, I don't know if you know this, but inside the helmets, there's a radio communication that can happen. And so the, the coach on the sidelines can literally speak words, and the, the player can hear the words in his helmet. It's phenomenal technology. And uh, as well, they also have a, the, the play caller up in the stands, or up in the, the glass box, that can give plays in. Well, recently, they're, they're selling technology that can jam the signal, Right? So, so there's this illegal technology you can get in Europe um, if you want, want to get it and 
you know, screw players for the next game, screw up players for the next game. So, th- so there's this technology out there, and they think it might have been that. And you see RG3, this picture of him behind his 300-pound lineman about to snap the ball, and suddenly he gets up, and he's like, uh, I don't know what to do here, you know? There's no information coming to me. And honestly, in your walk with God, you can often feel that way. You can often feel like, okay, God, you're, you're not giving me the clue in as to what you're doing in my environment. But I want to take a moment and I want to go a little bit above the scene like a bird. And I want to ask this question. Okay, what is the purpose of the wilderness? What is God doing in these moments? The first thing that he's doing is this. He's, he's removing your crutches. Chuck Swindoll has a, a talk series in which he goes through Life of David and, and he calls this portion of the life of David, the place where the crutches are removed. Um, my wife's a veterinarian, and, uh, and so I asked her the question, hey, have you ever like, had like, a crazy dog experience where crutches didn't work out right? And she says, well, yeah, there's one I can think of. Um, there, in a dog, if it breaks its leg, they'll put a, a metal rod through it to, to make it heal, like if it's a bad break. And, and typically, you take that out after a couple weeks, a couple months, just so it can heal and it can go in the right direction. But she said there was this one dog that the owner had done that, but then the owner left the dog and it, um, it escaped or something like that. It got put in a pound and left there for years. And so what happened as, as, a, as a metal rod to help bring healing stuck out the top of his shoulder and, and made his leg go straight and he couldn't even move it. So much so that the, the surgeons, the veterinarian surgeons, had to go in there and remove it so, so that that could actually bring healing. See, crutches are great. Stabilizers are great. But when they become the thing you lean on to give you life, to give you security, to give you hope, God says, you know what, that, that's, that's not what's going to be best for you. I'm going to put you in a, the wilderness, and I'm going to strip some of those things from you. And it's for your good. For me, um, it happened when I was in college. It was my junior year of college. And uh, I ran track in college, and, uh, and I had an injury called plantar fasciitis, which is a fancy word for my foot hurt. And, uh, and so I couldn't run. Uh, I couldn't run at all. And so I had to live in my own little personal hell uh, as I sat on a stationary bike for three months, riding three hours a day. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent a lot of time on stationary bikes. Um, there are punishments worse than death, and this is one of them. Um, and, and so I would sit there. I would put towels around me, and, uh, and I would sweat, and I would sit there, and there was no TV. There was nothing to watch. There was just me in this stupid room, and I would sit there and just ride this bike going, God, you're an idiot. God, what are you doing? God, I can't believe you're putting me through this. This is absurd. I can't believe because I'm living right and you are not doing what I want you to do. And it was so hard. But finally, when I got through that, I hate you because of what you're putting me through. And I said, okay, Lord, what are you doing with me? What are you taking from me? I finally got to the point that he was wanting me to get to, which is like this. It's yours. It's yours. I'm not going to lean on that to give me significance, status, to give me hope. I'm going to lean on you. And was it painful? Oh, yeah. But was it worth it? Oh, yes. 
The second thing that God might be doing in your life is, is refining your character. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, it says this, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, I do this. See, God's going to put some of you in what feels like a furnace. And in 1 Peter, he, he kind of gives this illustration of, of, of your faith being refined like gold. And if you're not familiar with how uh, people take from, from a raw ore and make it into some, uh, a perfectly good wedding ring that you're going to buy your chick, um, if you're not sure about what the process looks like, it's like this. They, they take a raw ore and they heat it up. And the, the dross will come to the top and they will scrape it off and they will continue to heat this up. And, and I've never been a piece of metal heated and I don't think metal can talk. But if it could... It might say, what are you doing around me? That's really hot. What are you doing to me? Like, stop that. Okay, you just took that away. Like, what's going on? Like, why are you doing this to me? Why, why are you taking, why are you changing me in this way? And as the story goes, the goldsmith heats it until he can see his own reflection in it. And God will heat the circumstances around your life because you and I, we have things in our heart that need to be removed because they don't look like Christ. I love the illustration by uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, In the book, Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you th- that you thought of. He's throwing in a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, raising towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, what God is doing in your life is, is he's got a vision for you that's much bigger than yours. And he's got a destiny for you that's much bigger than yours. And he's got a hope and a dream for your life that may be much bigger than the one you're thinking about. And you're like, I just want a cottage and a normal life. And God's like, yeah, yeah, that's not part of the plan. And I'm going to wreck you. I'm going to mold you. I'm going to take some things out of your life. I'm going to build some things in your life. And you don't know what I'm doing, but I'm telling you what, if you just stay with me, if you just trust me, it will be a beautiful product. The next thing that, uh, that I think he's doing is this. Um, He's replacing your hope. I love this poem. It's an old poem by Martha Snail Nicholson. He says this, One by one he took them from me, all the things I valued most, until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost, and I walked earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty. And at the end of the poem she says, But at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches the hand's already full. He says, God's saying, look, I, I, I got something for you. I've got a hope for you. I've got a place for you. I've got a plan for you. And, and, and I'm telling you, if you just trust me, if you just go with me on this, if you let me mold you and you submit to me, it's going to be what you want. It's going to be producing in your life the hope and the peace and the joy that you want. But you've got to go with me on it. Oswald Sanders has a 
a way of saying it like this. He says the saint's life is like, that saint's life is in the hands of God's like a bow and arrows in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something the saint cannot see. But the Lord continues to stretch and strain. And every once in a while, the saint says, I can't take it anymore. Yet God pays no attention. He goes on stretching until his purpose is in sight. And then he lets the arrow fly. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, hey, I've got a destination for you that's a lot further than what you're aiming at. And for most of us, we aim at, at, at temporary moments and temporary pleasures. Like, I just want a good house and a good wife and a good job and a safe and secure place. And God's saying, yeah, 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 that's awesome. But I've got this destination for you. And it's going to require you to go through the strains and the pains of the molding in your heart and life. But you've got to stay with me on it. You've got to come with me and you've got to submit to my will. And that's what David's doing. He's saying, all right, God, I'm going to try to trust you. But what I love about David is that he doesn't take this laying down. He doesn't say, okay, whatever you're going to do, God, I trust you. He, he actually is very vocal in his response. And if you flip over to Psalm 147, um, you see this inside, or 142, you see this inside picture into how David is responding to this moment. Psalm 142 is a mictum of David, a, a prayer when he was in the cave. And when he's in the cave in the lowest moment of his life, he says this, I cry out with my voice to the Lord. I make my supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit is overwhelmed within me, you knew my path in the way where I walked. You have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry. For I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison, so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteousness will surround me, for you deal bountifully with me. I love what he does there. He gets honest. What do you do? How do you walk through the, the wilderness well? First of all, you, you look up. And you get honest with God. I don't know if you've ever done that. You've, you feel like it's a safe moment to like complain to God and tell him what's really going on. But I tell you what, no relationship grows without this crucial ingredient of you being honest with how you feel towards God. Uh, after my wife and I got married, uh, my wife and I dated for almost nine years uh, before we got married. She was a freshman in high school. I was a sophomore, and so we dated. We weren't going to get married then, you know, so dated through college and a little bit after. And, uh, and honestly, we never fought. Uh, there was a little bit in the wedding planning deal that we're like, who's coming and who's not? And, you know, who's a team, who's not? And uh, so we had those issues, um, which you might at one point in time. But we never really fought. There was never really any strain uh, until we got married. And uh, six months in, um, I just had this frustration with her, and she had this frustration with me. And what I came to realize quickly is is this. um, The way we had previously dealt with our frustration with one another was to ignore it and not talk about it. 
which works when you're dating because you can be like, I'm out of here and just leave. But the, when you're married, like you're laying next to the problem, right? You're laying next to the issue. And that problem may be you, right? But you're laying right there and it's right in front of your face. You cannot escape it. And there comes the moment when I finally just said, okay, look, we've got to talk this out. You know why some of you don't feel close to God? You know why some of you feel so distant from him? It's because you've never been honest with him. You've never just come to him and said, okay, Lord, this is my disappointment. This is how you're not meeting my needs. This is my struggle with you. I mean, look at David's words. He's like, you've laid a trap for me, God. You have no regard for me. No one, only enemies are surrounding me. And, and he says, but at the end, but I will trust you. But God, I gotta tell you what's really going on in my heart. I think one of the most godly and Christian things that we can do is to be open and honest. We look up and we say, God, this is what you're doing to me. And ask the question, why? The next thing that he does, and I think it's beautiful, is that he looks around. In 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 3, it says that, that God brought this crew of people to him, around him. He brought his family. He brought some, some of this, these 400 bunch of miscreants. And he looked at them. And what's so amazing is that David takes these crew of nobodies and makes them into somebodies. He takes this crew of malcontents and he makes them into what will be his cabinet when he takes office. Go read 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are the men that become the mighty men. These are the men that are known epically for their submission to this king. See, they rode with him, and David took a look around and said, Okay, God, as long as I'm not dead, I'm not done. As long as I've got breath in my lungs and vitality in my life, I still have a purpose in this world. And the same is true for you. If you're not dead, God isn't done with you. So one of the things that I do, I, I don't know if, if you journal or not, um, but I'm a journaler. And if you were to read my journal, which you can't, uh, but if you were to read it, you would see pages and pages and pages of complaint. Like, God, you're not doing this. And that's just kind of how I interact. And then I, I take a step back and I say, okay, Lord, what are you doing around me? What are you doing in my life? I take a look at my wife and say, you've given me a beautiful wife. I take a look at my kids. You've given me two beautiful kids. You've given me a ministry to serve in. You've given me friends around me. You, you're not done with me yet. And when you're in the lowest lows of the wilderness, you take a look around and say, God hasn't abandoned you. And the last thing he does, and I think this is beautiful, is that he looks ahead. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 23, the, the moment turns as, as, as tragedy happens. Um, Saul was on a rampage. There were some men that had helped David escape Saul in particular some priests. And Saul comes in and kills all of them. And there was one survivor, Abiathar. And in 1 Samuel 22, looking down at verse 20, it says, Now the son of Ahalimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, there's his name, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord And then David said to Abiathar, I knew on the day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, don't name your kid Doag the Edomite. I have have brought about the death of every person in your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. 
How could he say that? How could he say to this man, you are safe with me? When Saul was on this rampage to destroy and kill, how could he legitimately say in this moment, okay, man, you just stick with me. You're going to be safe with me. Read Psalm 57. It says, I will trust in you and not be afraid. In verse 3 and 4, it says, when I was afraid, I will put my trust in you. In verse 9, it says, this I know, that God is with me. He says, hey, look, God's with me. I've got a promise from God. I've got a destiny with God. And I just know that if you come with me, it's going to be where you want to go. So you just stay here. You'll be safe. I love that. He looks ahead. And so in the same promises is true for us. It may not be in this life. But flash forward several thousand years and, and it wasn't a King David. It was the son of David that came. And the son of David, Jesus Christ, lived the life we could not live in perfect obedience to God. He died the death every one of us deserved to die. And he took upon himself the punishment and pain that we deserve for our sins. And it says that he rose in victory. You know what he told his disciples? He says, hey, you just trust me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you just trust me. You walk with me, and I promise you, it will be more magnificent than you can ever imagine. And his disciples are like, we don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, I, I know, you're a bunch of morons, but, but just trust me. I'm going to send the Spirit. He's going to inspire you. He's going to change you. And although circumstantially things may not change, you trust me, and I will bring you into glory. He said to the thief on a cross right next to him, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It may look bad now, but there will come a day when every tear will be wiped away and every pain will be taken away. Will we suffer in this life? Will we suffer the challenges of this life? You bet. But there's coming a day when it's all going to be worth it. I pray that you'll follow that king because he loves you. It says that in God's presence, there are pleasures at his right hand and joy forever. I pray that we'd know him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for, for your word. And I thank you so much for the life of David, a man who was not perfect, but by your grace was being perfected. And Lord, I thank you that you led him through the wilderness well, and we can look at his life and get a window into how we might live. God, you called him a man after your own heart. And Lord, I pray that we could be men and women after your heart. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk through our wilderness well and that you would mold us and change us so that we'd be used powerfully for you. And, Lord, if our trial doesn't end in this life, I thank you that we have the hope of eternity with you. Father, we love you. I lift up these students to you, that you hold them, protect them, and guide them. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Hey, y'all have a great night. Thank y'all so much.